What's up guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls episode number 28. My name is James Scully. Today, welcome to November on The Wall Breakers. It's November 1st and for November 1st and episode number 28, I sit down for a chat with Pamela J. Campbell. Pamela is a two-time published author and soon-to-be three-time published author. And the other thing about Pamela is that she has, in her life, spent an exorbitant amount of time in foster care, and she also grew up in an incredibly abusive environment. She has moved past those points in her life and has grown from her experiences. And I talk with Pamela about her journey from foster care to freedom, her memoir, A World Apart, from Foster Care to Freedom will soon be published. She has been working on it. The manuscript is finished. She is being present and taking the time to make sure that when she releases it, it will be what she wants it to be. And in the meantime, she shares with us the many experiences that she's had, both very bad and very good, that have helped her grow as a person and become more self-aware. And it doesn't matter to me what our experiences are in life. The more we connect and talk to each other, the more we see that even horrible traumatic experiences, there's things there that we can learn from them. And there's things there that we can learn from Pamela's situation and apply to ours and help us realize that this world isn't so alone after all. It's a place that we can all connect. Now, like I always say, you can get these podcasts by going to soundcloud.com slash thewallbreakers. You can also do it by subscribing on iTunes by searching for The Wall Breakers. If you're going to do either one of those things, please rate us, review us, Tell me what you like, tell a friend, tell two friends, word of mouth. It's the only way that these podcasts are getting spread. I also want to say that it's November now on The Wall Breakers, so that means a change of topic. Now, our major holiday in the month of November here in America is Thanksgiving. So this month, our topic on The Wall Breakers will be grace and gratitude. And uh, Pamela has a tremendous amount of both grace and gratitude considering what she's come from. She is a wonderful human being, and I love talking to her. Her and I sat off-air for an extra hour and chatted after we recorded this interview because we kept wanting to talk to each other. And isn't that wonderful in life? So, as I've said before, I'm not going to take up too much time here on the opening. I want to jump right into this interview. It's incredibly powerful. You're going to love Pamela because she is just a wonderful, self-aware human being. Please listen to her story. It's amazing. And right after this break, I'm coming back with Pamela and Breaking Walls episode number 28, From Foster Care to Freedom. Hey guys, welcome back to Breaking Walls. And my guest today is two-time and soon-to-be three-time published author, Pamela J. Campbell. And I wanted to speak with Pamela about... Her experiences growing up in an abusive environment and then also living in foster care. And she has a memoir that's set to come out later this year called From Foster Care to Freedom. So I'd like to welcome Pamela to the podcast. Hey, how are you? How are you? Thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me. And I will quickly say that it's a world apart from foster care to freedom. So there is a beginning is that too. That's your upcoming memoir. Yes, thank you for having me on. This is kind of exciting. <laughs> I feel like a celebrity. <laughs> well, let me ask, how do you feel about writing a memoir at such a young age, really? I mean, you've still got much more life to live. You felt it very important to stop and publicly reflect about your life right now. True. Um, it's funny you say that because a lot of people 
always tell me, well, you're so young. You're so, you're so young. You, you haven't even lived your life. And I feel like I have an old soul. And maybe that's because I left home at 16 and put myself in foster care. So I feel like I, I had to grow up rather quickly. So I learned a lot of lessons. Um, I've had different experiences that I feel I'm at the point in my life where I want to reflect on that, um, share so that way people can kind of learn from my mistakes. Whatever insight I can offer anyone is really the, is really one of the main reasons of writing the book and also to heal. Because I mean, you know, I experienced about 10 years of trauma at the hands of my father. And I'm at a point where I get to continue the healing process. That makes sense. Like at one point, you know, yeah, I went to therapy. I did other things to support me in my healing process. But with writing this memoir, other things have come up. So it's kind of like what my, um, when we met, she was my mentor. And now she's a dear friend of mine. She always tells me, well, so it's a different layer of the onion now. It's a different layer of healing. So that's where I'm at right now. Do you think that part of healing is being able to go back into traumatic experiences and relive them without feeling the pain again? Well, I don't know if it's possible not to relive the pain, but what I'm learning is it's okay to be with whatever it is that comes up to support you in moving past it. Because in my experience, I've, I've noticed when the times when I was running away from my past, it, it catches up. Like things are just always going to catch up to you and they show up in different ways in your life, whether it's relationships, romantic relationships, um, you know, workplace, whatever it is, like our past experiences, if we don't deal with it, it's going to show up and manifest itself in so many different ways. So I feel that it's something that benefits not you, but so many others when we take time to heal and just be with um the things that have occurred the things that we haven't dealt with the things that we can run from because i mean you know you can run but you can't hide for too long Mm -hmm. absolutely would you say then that whether emotionally obviously but also with people that there is no such thing as a loose end in real life you have to tie everything together because it will come back one way or another you can't just leave it absolutely i totally agree with that i believe that the universe comes in all full circle and so the things that we choose to not look at, the things that we choose to neglect, like I feel like we, you need to deal with it because it's going to support you to get to the next level in your life, the next mm-hmm. place that you're supposed to be, the next experience you're supposed to go through. Um, it, it all ties in together. Now, I want to stop for a second because we haven't really talked about it yet, but you come from an incredibly abusive childhood situation. And I'm very lucky. I had a a loving childhood where I grew up feeling the love of my family. And I have no idea what it's like to grow up in a, a truly abusive environment. And most people are fortunate enough not to. I read a book a few years ago. It's called Tribal Leadership. And in that book, they outline the five kinds of levels of tribes in humanity. And it says that we all form tribes. And level five would be the top level, and that's equated to like a sports team winning a championship. You know, like we're we're the best thing, but it's not sustainable. But level one is the equivalent of like a prison riot situation where like society is one minute away from total chaos at all times. To me, that's what growing up in an abusive environment would have to be like without living it. 
how much are you willing to expand on what that's like to grow up? And do you understand that there's better out there when you grow up in something like that or you just can't see it because this is your life every moment? Um, to be honest, during that, during the time that I was living with my father and in that abusive household, I didn't, I didn't think there was better, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> I thought that, well, you know, everybody was being treated the way I was being treated at home. Like, you know, um, you know, I had friends that I would just, I wonder, like, well, aren't, don't you get beat at home? Or, oh my God, you're allowed to go out? Um, it wasn't until maybe junior high school where I started to say, okay, well, you know, this is, this is just my fault. This is just my situation, right? But mm -hmm. I didn't see any, I didn't see any silver lining. I didn't, I didn't see the light. Um, the point where I tried to commit suicide when I was in the seventh grade, because um, I, I did not think that there was any better out there. You're 12, 13 years old, and you want to take your own life. I think when we're 12 or 13, we think we're self-aware for our you know, age thing. And I think we are. We are self-aware. Even if we can't understand on an adult level some of the things that go on and why they go on, we only know what's in front of us. How, how does that – I mean, I understand how that comes about, but how, do you, how did you go about, if you mind asking, what was, the, what was the plan and what was going through your head at that moment? I just wanted to end the pain. <laughs> it was just um, years of being told that I was, um, that I didn't matter, that I was stupid, um, that I was dumb and ugly like my mom who had left when I was five. Um, I just wanted it to be done with. I remember, I think I was secretly seeing a therapist. Um, my principal was aware of what was going on. She called you in the services. Unfortunately, they came, left, didn't do anything. So arrangements were made for me to secretly see a therapist. And I remember telling her, I said, you know, I, like this, I can't go on. I just can't go on. And I remember we sat together during the session and she cried the whole time. She cried the whole time. And I remember just, you know, trying to, trying to reassure her that suicide was like the right thing to do. Um, and then she told me, of course, since I wanted to harm myself, that she had reported, she had to tell the principal who then called my father in. And I remember him coming to the school and he said, if you kill yourself, you only take your eyes with you. And supposedly it's an, an African proverb that means, um, like, you know, you just, you're not affecting nobody. Like, if you die, you die. You're not taking anyone with you. And I remember thinking, my God. My father has been brought to the school. He's been told how depressed I am, how my grades are failing, how, you know, I'm just, I have no will to live. And his response is, if you die, you only take yourself with you. Like he didn't give a shit, basically. Right, exactly. And I'm like, man, like, is it, and then you start to wonder, like, is it me? Is, is something wrong with me? You know? Because mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a teenager, right? So well, it's like, you know, how, what am I possibly doing wrong that, I deserve this treatment. I'm assuming also step one, we, I think we all know step one to self-forgiveness is to realize that it's not you. Right. It's, it's something that's happening to you and it's not your fault. Right. How do you finally escape from the situation? Because at this point in time, I know you did escape later, but also at this point in time, when you're in the seventh grade, you can't yet see that there's any escape other than death. For me, even though it was a failed suicide attempt, um, and you know, the following year I would be gra um, entering freshman year of high school, 
it, I was like dead man walking. Like I just knew that at any given time, like the day was going to come, this man was finally going to kill me. And I mean, what was I going to do? I had no defense against it. So I entered high school and I remember, I think it was sophomore year. Like I just, I just could not take it. Like I was coming to like my breaking point. And I remember getting tutoring from my math professor. My father was very, very passionate about math. And so, you know, my grades had to be top, top notch, especially in that class. And so one day after school, um, I received my test score back and it was a 76. My heart dropped. I was petrified. And my math professor, you know, we began to ask him what was, what was going on, what, what, you know, why are you upset? And I just, I just bursted into tears and I told him what was going on at home. I told him they had been going on, the abuse had been going on for 10 years and nothing was done. Student services would always come and leave, come and leave. My principal at the Catholic school I attended, the elementary school, she tried going after him, that didn't work. The principal at the high school, the junior, the junior high school where I tried to commit suicide, she tried to go after him, it didn't work. So at this point, I'm just like, there's no, <laughs> no one, no one can help me. And my father would always say, no one can help me, you can't escape me. So after a while, I really started to believe that no one could help me and there was no way to escape me. And so that afternoon, I shared my story with the professor and I said, you know, I begged him not to say anything. And he, all he said was, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. So my interpretation was, he wasn't going to say anything. So, I left school that day. I went to go pick up my little, my younger sister. I went home, and as I was preparing our dinner, um, the answer machine, the, the phone rang, and then it was the answer machine. I'm sorry, the phone rang, and on the answer machine was children's services, and they said how they had received um, a report of child abuse, and they wanted my dad to back now okay so common sense right you would think i would delete the message right mm -hmm. <laughs> i was so afraid i mean it was as if i had weights on my feet i could not move and i was like my god this is the day it's, this is the day the day which is the day he promised me the day i've been waiting for so i fed my sister i looked over her homework we went to bed early Next morning, my father called me to the living room and he asked me about the message on the answer machine. And I, I kept, I just lied. I said, I, I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, he asked me, so then he cornered me. So I'm like against the wall and he starts choking me, punching me, kicking me as he's continuously asking me if I said anything to tell anybody, tell anybody. And I kept lying. I kept saying no, no. I said, I just had to make it to that front door. And get out of that apartment. That's all I can think about. I need to get to that front door. And so he continued hitting, choking me, punching me. He said, All right, I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to listen to this. And he said, If I find out you had anything to do with that message, I will kill you. And I knew in my heart he would kill me if I came back home that day. Grabbed my sister, dropped her off school, and I ran. I ran to school. I ran, I ran, I ran right into that professor's classroom. While he was teaching, and I was like, 
you just killed me. Like, you just put me six feet under the ground. Like, why would you do that? I begged you not to say anything. He escorted me to the principal's office. My guidance counselor was there. Everyone's trying to calm me down. Um, I must have been very, very upset to the point where I hyperventilated. I remember waking up and there was like the ambulance, like there were just these people trying to comfort me. Um, but I wasn't having any of it. I was just like, we need to figure out a game plan here because I cannot go home. I knew if I went home that day, that man was going to kill me. Um, so back in the day, usually children's services don't usually go to the school. I don't know why that was before. Um, so they called a social worker, told them the situation, and they came to my school. So they, they sent a caseworker and I told her, I said, if we leave, I'm not leaving without my sister. Like, we have to go to the school, take her, and like, wherever you're taking us, you're taking us. Like, at this point, I have to trust, put the, put the, trust the stranger with my life, with our lives. And so, we got in the cab, got my sister, and then we went to this group home. We got to the group home, like, about maybe 7 p.m. that night, and I remember, once we were settled in, she said, well, I have to call your father and let him know that we have you. Um, she called, and all I could hear, I could, I could hear him screaming, Pam, come home, come home. And my heart just started beating so fast. And as the phone was being passed to me, she said, you don't have to speak to him if you don't want to. And like for the first time, like someone actually gave me a choice. And I said, you know what? I uh, know. I don't. I don't want to speak to him, and I didn't. Um, and like they said, that 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 is all she wrote. Because after that day, um, I was placed. Me, and my sister was placed in a home that Sunday evening. It took about forty-eight hours to find a um a home because I refused to let them separate us. So it took a little longer. But unfortunately, in foster care, people don't want to make this because you know they're stereotypes and. You know, all these different labels. Um, and so I was like, well, my eight-year-old sister, so I'm 16, she's eight, and I'm like, well, we're a package deal. <laughs> and so they finally found us the home Sunday night. Um, you know, eventually my sister went to go live with her birth, her birth mother, and she lives here in the state. And I stayed in foster care, except for myself, as long as she was safe. Can I go back for a few minutes here? I'm assuming if your father's punching and kicking and choking you, there are physical signs of this on your body that people can plainly see. They know you're not making this up. You know, this is for real. Right. And it's funny because there were times where my global studies teacher, um, so sometimes the impact of a hit would be so harsh that I would break out, um, like as if I had like a face full of pimples. Mm -hmm. And he would make me put, an ice pack on it for the swimming to go down. But sometimes, I mean, it was obvious you could see. And so she would always ask me if I was okay. Um, and so my thing was, oh, well, I ran into the cupboard or like I was just being clumsy again. And like people bought this. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yes, I'm going to die in front of these people's noses <laughs> and no, one, no one's going to notice. Like, is anyone paying attention? So there, there were signs at times. There were signs, um, physical signs because on my face, 
Um, then sometimes, you know, you couldn't see because I was covered up. Like it would be on my arm or um, somewhere near my stomach. My father would do his best to make sure that I, I didn't go to school with um, any signs. That's why, you know, he would throw an ice pack and be like, okay, put this on your face and stay, stay behind um, while I'm getting ready for school just a little bit longer until like the swelling went down. So not only is he beating you, but then he's giving you ice packs so that, so he's very self-aware in what he's doing. It's not like he's just blind rage and not thinking about any of this. This is a very calculated man. I would, you know, it's, that's a weird question. Because I, for me, I feel like, okay, yes, I, I would think so. Um, but then it was, it was the weirdest thing. So after a hit, a punch, he throw the ice bag and then he'd say, I love you. And in my mind, so because of that, I used to equate love with abuse, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm like, if that's love, I don't want no parts of that. Um, and he would always complain about how he was treated the same way as a child. So my thinking was, well, if it was done to you and you knew how it felt, why would you do it to me, right? And so right. In lies the whole cycle of abuse. Sure. Generation to generation. Um, it took me a while to learn that people do what they know. And it, it's not, so hear me, it's not to excuse what he did, but people do what they know. They do the best they can until they know better. And so when people know better, they do better. And so in my father's situation, he was so arrogant and so righteous that he wasn't going to let anybody tell him how to raise his children, right? Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, inside of that is what almost caused my death, right? Right. So me being an adult and knowing what I went through, the trauma I went through as a child, I get to cut that cycle of abuse and learn different ways of being with people, different ways of how I were to raise my children one day. Um, and being open opposed to being closed and arrogant and pretending that I know it all. Right. I want to go back for just one minute here too, because you mentioned that your mother left at five. Now she left for the same reasons that you did basically, correct? Right. But see, I didn't know that. I was raised, um, I was raised to believe that she left because she no longer loved me. She abandoned me. She didn't want me. And for many, many years, I, I believed it. And it, I think at some point, my anger grew stronger as he continued to hit me as I got older. Your my anger mom, towards your mother? Yes. My anger towards my mom. Mm-hmm. For the life of me, I couldn't understand how does a mother leave her child behind? Right? Like, who does that? Mm-hmm. And so my anger towards her was like wildfire. <laughs> it was bad until I turned 21 years old. I went to Paris to visit my aunt, my father's sister. She sat me down. She said, okay, well, you're, you're older now. And you are, there's some things that you need to know. I said, okay. She sat me down and she told me an incident that happened when I was five. My father 
and I and my mom lived in a two-bedroom in Harlem. We lived on the fifth floor. And one day, while I was out at a friend's house, they were arguing in their bedroom, which is which had a had a fire escape. And she was confronting him about something. She thought that he was going to strike her, so she raised her hand to kind of protect herself. And unfortunately, she fell out of the fire escape. She fell out of our fifth story apartment. And by the grace of God, she survived. I mean, she had a broken leg. She was rushed to the ambulance. On the way to, um, she was rushed to the hospital. On the way to the hospital, she asked for a French translator. And she told them that her husband was going to kill her, that she needed help. Um, and so they did. They helped her with the help of the Ivorian consulate. A uh, plane ticket was produced. And she left. She, she, she left. That's, that's how she escaped my father. And even hearing this at age 21, when I just aged out of foster care, I was still mad. <laughs> of course. I mean, now it, it makes sense. Yes. Okay. So, wow. She didn't abandon me. She didn't, but then, you know, come to find out she had been writing letters. My father hadn't, he didn't give me not one of the letters that she had written me. Um, it it made sense. I understood, but I didn't understand if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, it does. There was still some work and healing that needed to be done. Um, and I wasn't a space for it at the time. I just wasn't open for it. Do you currently have empathy for her now, years later? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's funny you say that because... Um, in writing my manuscripts, I dedicated my book to my mom and to every woman who's ever had to leave their child behind to escape an abusive relationship. And so, absolutely, absolutely. So, on one hand, while she did technically abandon you because she left that day, and it's easy to sit and say, I was the abandoned one, but anybody with a conscience who abandons their child, the extenuating circumstances must be so great that the load on her conscience must have been horrendous after that. And right. then, of course, she's writing you letters, which I, I guess it wouldn't be anyone's surprise that your father never showed them to you. You know, he right. probably threw them out or read them. Into, so I also want to ask you, you mentioned something about common sense earlier, that not deleting the message from child services off the answer machine. With child services itself, wouldn't common sense say that if you, if a child is being abused by a parent and come and child services calls or comes, of course the parent's going to deny it. They're not going to be like, yeah, of course, I'm just beating the crap out of my kid. Yeah, please come take him. By the way, arrest me. You know, like what, what, you have to, to me, you would have to do something in some kind of secrecy to really get the child out of there. Exactly. And it, it's funny because as you say that, I'm thinking back to, when they would come and we would be in the living room, it'd be my dad, myself, and the worker. And right in front of my father, they would ask, is he abusing you? And in my mind, well, what, did, what would you want me to say? Yeah, he's beating the hell out of me <laughs> while he's standing in front of me. Like, I'm not going to do that, right? And it's like, 
my father is very good at the art of manipulation. So somehow he would finagle his way out of the situation and it would seem as if I was a problem child and it's not abuse, but it's a form of discipline and he wasn't doing anything wrong. And I'm like, what just happened here? So when we talk about abuse and, and fixing abuse and, and eliminating it as much as possible, obviously one important thing is to remove the abused person from the situation and help them, help them get over the trauma and move on with their lives because they have an entire life to live. But that doesn't really, that, that fixes it on, on like half a level. Do you know what I mean? Like that's partially fixing it, but it's not really eliminating it. Although it could teach you as we go on to not abuse others in the same way that you were abused. What do we do with someone like your father then? You know, I'll give you a side example. My father, I was in a single parent household. My mother got pregnant at 21. My father was also 21 years old at the time. And as an almost 30 year old man, I have tons of empathy for him now because he ran because his father was abusive in the same way that your father was. But as an adult, me as an adult, talking to him like five years ago, I remember him saying to me, these days I have more anger for my mother because she just stood there while it was happening and watched us get abused. So similar to your situation and the anger that you were feeling. But what do we do with these situations? His father was a Eucharistic minister, of course, you know, like, so he seems like the guiding light to the community, but how do we fix this? What do we do? Obviously, if I'm your next door neighbor, and you're being abused like this, my first reaction is to wait for your father when he's coming out one day and hit him over the head with a baseball bat. But then I go to jail and that doesn't really correct it. You know what I mean? Like in some ways he gets what he deserved and then some, but now I pay the price for him abusing you, you know? So how do we fix that as a society? I would definitely say it's kind of like that, that sign on the, on the, on the MCA subway. If you see something, say something. Because there were people, after the fact, I, I learned there were professors who knew what was going on and said nothing. They chose not to say anything. I mean, I remember going back to school and they were like, yeah, I knew. I saw the signs or this. And I, it, it was my boggling. And I feel, a part of me felt if I did die, it wasn't so much because of my father, at the hands of my father, but it would have been because of the silence of others. Yes. And I feel like as a society, we definitely, I feel like we have a responsibility to say something, say something, speak up. Even if you feel it's going to fall on deaf ears, say something. I'm sorry to cut you off. I've often wondered why that is, though, as society. Like, to me, the teachers that saw that, that's not really apathy. Like, they did care. Do you know what I mean? Like, they weren't just looking at it and going, well, if she's dead tomorrow... One less student, you know, they, they weren't right, right. feeling that way. And I also think it makes me think of off the fly of, I think the name is Kitty Genovese, uh, the woman who was like stabbed 15 times in an alleyway in the 1950s and like lay there dying and nobody, like nobody called the police, nobody did anything. I mean, is that a New York thing that like we just don't want to get involved? Or, I, I don't know if it's a New York thing, a cultural thing, or just a people thing. In my experience, um, people feel like, okay, well, they have enough stuff on their plate. Right. I have enough problems. I have enough things to deal with. And so they just don't mind their business. And again, it's just speaking from my experience when I was younger. Um, but I don't know exactly what that's about. What I would love to see is more people just raising awareness, more people just helping however, which way they, they are able to support. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know, having a conversation with somebody or maybe you do see signs and you pull this person aside and say, Hey, you know what? Um, I'm here if you wanna if you wanna talk. Or when you're ready, if you're ready, I'll I'll support you in trying to find a solution. When I think back, I remember thinking, Okay, well no one's gonna be able to help me, so you know what, don't don't the mother. The mother. And I have friends who are who are social workers and some of the people that they have They'll tell me, okay, well, this is girl, she's being abused, but she doesn't want me to help her. And when I hear this, it, it does not surprise me. You, you just, unless you've been through it, you cannot understand, like, the fear. Mm-hmm. The fear that runs through one's mind and body and soul when someone has put you through so much trauma and you're just filled with fear. Yeah. I, I don't know how to put it into words. So, of course, you know, when they're trying to figure out how to help these young people in, in the system, they don't be bothered. One, there's like lack of trust, right? <laughs> so they feel like, okay, well, my parents have already bailed on me. They've let me down. So are you. It's kind of expected, right? Yes. Um, so they walk around disgruntled, the trust issues. And unfortunately, this carries out through their adult life. <laughs> With trust issues <laughs> and disgruntled, um, it's a it's a vicious cycle, unfortunately. My vision for the world is a world where members of the foster community know that they are loved and know that they matter. And so, inside that vision, I will create awareness because sometimes I meet people. Now, some of my experience in foster care, or some of my experience as a child, and they're shocked, and I'm like. Uh, hey, I don't know what you read in the paper or what you see on TV, but it's real. You know, it's it's a real issue. Right. Um, and, and, a, and whether you were an officer or not, abuse is a real issue, you know? Mm-hmm. I just wish there was just more awareness around abuse and the different ways that us as a society can support one another and just create something different. I believe that we have to get out there, obviously, and talk to each other. Not even just about abuse. I mean, in life in general, because the more you connect, the more we're connected with each other. The more, if I'm your best friend and something happens to you, I'm going to jump in because I have such an innate connection with you. And also, because I'm connected with you, whatever fear I would have about jumping in is gone. To me, I believe we are our brother's keepers in this world, basically. Like, I have to look out for you and you have to look out for me because what are we going to be alone? What kind of a, what solution is that in life? No, I absolutely agree. A lot of people think um, when I say this, I feel like we're all one. At the end of the day, we are all seeking the same thing. And in your opinion, what is that? Okay, thank you. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Acceptance. Inner peace. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like if we just, if everyone understood that, understood that we are all one and teaching the same thing, the world would be such a different place. I have very, very specific thoughts on why our world is that way, but (laughs) I think it's more profitable to keep people apart for people. But the truth is, it's like you're saying, we're New Yorkers. So you and I have grown up in a true melting pot. And I always joke, I say that I'm, I'm a native of Brooklyn, and when you come from Brooklyn, it doesn't matter what religion, what race you are, you're more Brooklyn than anything else. If I'm in China, 
and I meet someone who's from Brooklyn, it doesn't matter who they are, we're going to connect instantly. Absolutely. But it's also true that it doesn't matter where you're from. Yeah. What are, what are we all seeking in life? Love, you know, feeling like there's warmth around us, that we know who we are, what place we're in. And yeah, to me, yeah. when you place somebody in foster care, that's like an organ being transplanted or something like that. You know, you don't know how it's going to go. Now, you, of course, as we'll get on in this conversation, not only have you lived in foster care, but you, like you've mentioned, you're now working in that kind of environment. Is it a crapshoot? Like, I know that you're pre-screening people as much as possible. Is it just a crapshoot? Is it just like being born with a mother and a father? That's a crapshoot, too, in a lot of ways. You're born in whatever situation you're born in. How can we make sure that it's not, I don't even know if it's necessarily a bad environment, a good environment, but placing kids with parents that are going to understand their situation specifically and just it's like going out on a date and people connect you know sometimes you have two nice people they're just flat with each other and like how do we how do how do you see in going forward as you've mentioned just a minute ago how do we make sure that these kids who are coming out of horrible situations get put in ones where they realize that something much better is here and they're living it now i think that goes back to what i was saying about part of my vision just raising awareness letting people know whether it's um, an organization of some sort, mentoring, just letting the kids know that someone is out there. Because in my experience, I feel society, the media, there's a stigma attached to the term foster care. Sure. It's funny because the word care is in the term, but there's a stigma attached to it. And so people don't really know what goes on. And as I sit here, I am want to be clear that I am grateful for the foster care because it literally saved my life. Absolutely. However, it wasn't the best scenario. Are there, and no system is perfect, right? Don't get me wrong. But I feel that there is so much work to be done within the foster care community. It, for me, it's a, it's a community that it's just not spoken about. Like it's like it doesn't exist. But it's there. These kids are there. These kids exist. These workers are overworked, underpaid. Their their course load is ridiculous. And to be a social worker, I'm sure like you really have to. Your heart has to be in it because the Lord knows they're not in it for the money. So they are invested, right? I had three social workers, and luckily they went to the same college that I had, that I was attending at the time. So I was fortunate. I had the good advice, feedback that they had to offer. I had a good relationship. They weren't always, you know, on my on my back about things. I, for the most part, had a good experience. That's not always the case. And right. so unfortunately, you're treated like a case number and not a person. Do we not want to talk about foster care as a society? Because we prefer not to be so uncomfortable to talk about a child who's getting beaten. Like, I don't want to think about that that's going on right now. Right. Is that why that is? To be honest, I don't know why it is. I just feel like maybe it's not, um, I don't know, because so many things come to my mind. Is it because um, people rather throw money towards something else? Is it not a worthy enough cause? Um, I don't know. And the media has a really great way of 
brainwashing society and having you think something is one way when it's not. Absolutely. Uh, people call me ignorant for that, but you know what? I'll take it. <laughs> That's um, not ignorant. It's it's mind blowing. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it, but I I'm, I know I'm clear that I get to use my story to start making the difference and start raising awareness through my books, through my speaking. It's just time. Are we really talking about raising the humanity of humanity? And I don't know if it's once again a New York thing where the pace of the city, I was just listening to a, or watching a, a clip with Carmelo Anthony that he shot for Vice Sports. And he was saying, man, if you don't get up some days in New York and say, fuck this city, you're not really a New Yorker. Like from down from the mayor to the mailman, everybody feels that way sometimes. So right. is it the pace of New York where like your rent is 50% of your paycheck and you better get to work? Like, how can I think about poor kids getting abused right now when I'm going to get abused by my boss if I'm not in on time? True, true. Um, I, I also believe it's, um, it's a me, it's a, it's a me culture, not a we culture. Uh, I, I'm going to get mine before you get yours. You know, I'm, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to do me. I'm gonna, and it's sad because that comes from a scarcity um, mindset, scarcity conversation. I feel like if people honestly believe that the universe was abundant and that there was enough for everybody, I feel like there would be so many different changes in society. I can't agree with you more than that. Because if you look at the way we're living right now, and I wonder, because it's 2015 and as a society with a lot of things, we are more open. And 40 years ago, foster care did exist, but we wouldn't talk about openly as a society. I'm part Irish and my, my grandfather grew up in it with sort of stereotypical drunk Irish father. and But that stuff gets swept under the rug because of the shame associated with it. So is that some of it too? Like we have to get rid of shame for ridiculous reasons to be able to talk about these things. I agree. Um, for me though, I feel the people that are within the system, the, the, the young adults that are in the system, if they were to remove the shame that they created in their mind, it would support in making a noise and, and, and creating an awareness. Because I remember, I remember being in college and having to apply for like I think it's, it's called Cal or these loans for school. And I remember sure. being called to the window, and she said, "Oh, well, you didn't fill out, you know, your your parents, right?" And I I would I whisper, I was like, "I'm." She said, I can't hear you. <laughs> and I remember feeling such shame because I was in the foster care. I mean, the city, literally my father, the state, my mother, and feeling like an outcast, right? So unfortunately, yes, the people that are in the system, within the system, if they can let go of the shame of whatever stories they created about themselves because of their current situation, it will support us in making it awareness so that other people can, I don't know, give a shit and actually like support in some type of way. Because again, if you're too ashamed to even talk about it, even if I, I'm the nicest person in the world and I would be willing to help, if I don't know, how can I help? Exactly. Okay. So to that note, do people wear a badge of abuse? Like if, do you, you know, we talked a few weeks ago on the phone and, and you said that and this makes sense because even if you remove yourself from a situation, and I believe that true self-awareness comes 
sometime between 20 and 30. And maybe that's because I'm in my late 20s and, you know, I think I have the world solved. But <laughs> um, you were said you were self-medicating through alcohol. And to me, there's a portion of you that had to know as you're drinking, like, I shouldn't really be getting bombed here. To, for, you know what I mean? Like, you know, in your mind, like, okay, this isn't a long-term solution. But do people wear the, to themselves, as what I mean by like, uh, do they wear the abuse as a badge? Do they wear it to continue to stop themselves from getting totally over it? Because to get totally over it means you have to go back into it and deal with it. Well, in my experience, I feel people, so I'm going to speak for myself. I wore it. Um, I wore the, would you say, a, a badge of abuse? Mm-hmm. So that I could be a victim. <laughs> At the end of the day, people don't, we do things for a reason, right? So humans, I'm not going to do something unless I'm getting something out of it, right? So through self-medicating, I was able to continue collecting evidence that I was a victim. I'm a victim for me, for me, for me, for me. And so I'm right, and this is the evidence that's going to support why I'm a victim. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, it does. To me, it's not like you got married as an adult who grew up in a nice environment and your husband turned out to be abusive and you're already old enough to process like, no, this isn't really supposed to be happening right now. You were born into that situation. So you had to learn how not to be a victim, basically. Right. Choose. At the end of the day, it's choice, right? So whether it's anger or, or you're angry. Well, I mean, so you can choose to be angry or choose not to be angry. Now, unfortunately, from birth, so about, let's say, 18, right? I don't, I don't, well, I don't have a choice because I am under my parents' supervision, right? Mm -hmm. Once we're 18 years old and we're deemed fit, we're, we're deemed as an adult, we have choices, right? So at the end of the day, our parents, whatever they've done, they've done the best that they could with what they have, right? And so their choices may have affected me in some type of way. But once I'm an adult, I can then make different choices. Because people kill me when they're like, my parents did this, my parents didn't do this, my parents, okay, so, and how old are you? They're like 30, they're like 40. How long are you gonna keep harping on what they did or didn't do? At this stage, you can make different choices, right? You can, you can do something different. You can try something different opposed to harping on what you didn't get or what you didn't receive. Oh, they didn't love me enough. They didn't do this. Well, maybe someone didn't love them enough. Oh, I was abused. Maybe they were abused. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's so many different interpretations. There's so many different angles that you can view this. At the end of the day, we all have to make the best choice that works for us. Right? So at that point, and I didn't notice at that point until I, you know, discovered self-discovery that I was choosing to be angry, that I was choosing to be a victim. Now, were you choosing to be a victim at that time because even if you didn't fully understand it, that was the easiest choice? It was the choice that just kept you in the same lane? Absolutely. In all forms of life, you'd think that we must change to grow. Well, I don't know if I agree that people change. I don't think people change, but I think people definitely mature. People definitely grow and people de definitely make different choices. But I don't believe that people change. I believe we are who we are. And inside of that, we can make different choices that'll give us different results in our life. As far as being self-aware for you goes, I saw um, 
it was a meme, but it's a Carl Jung quote that he says, no tree, and I'm paraphrasing for anyone listening who is quoting Carl Jung at dinner parties, a tree can't touch heaven. Its branches can't touch heaven if its roots can't touch hell. And to me, that's a very interesting point about being self-aware because when you are fully self-aware, every decision that you make is a choice. If you choose to be a dick to somebody in the street, you know you're doing that. It's a choice you're making at that moment. So to me, people, we're we're all self-aware. It's just a matter of whether or not you're willing to look in the mirror and say, I know exactly what I'm doing. Is that step one to stopping being a victim then by looking yourself in the mirror, admitting who you are and saying, all right, I'm in control now. So yes and no. What I mean by that is, for example, I remember when I started my journey on uh, self-discovery, transformational work, one of my biggest breakthroughs was that I was choosing to be angry. And I thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And when I thought about it, I said, wow, okay, this instructor may actually know what she's talking about. (laughs) I was choosing to be angry. And so that goes back to the, what you don't know, what you don't know, what you don't know, right? So we don't know what we don't know that we don't know what we don't know. Right. And once you know it, you know it. Exactly. And so once you know it, you can't pretend not to know no more because you know. And so, yes, this gentleman may be in that moment being a dickhead and that should be obvious. And yes, he is, but he may not be aware that's what he's choosing or that he has other options because he can choose to be something else in that moment opposed to being a dickhead. But unless you have that awareness, which is what I love so much about transformational work, then you get to check in and say, well, you know what? I don't want to be a dickhead in this moment. I can choose joy or I can choose love or I can choose something else. The problem is people walk around and it's, it's, in my experience, it's this self-righteousness in the sense of well, no, like it's I I've I've learned if people haven't experienced it, it can't it can't work out. If they haven't done it, it must not work. Where if people were more open minded and can be open to, hey, you have a choice. You can shift your demeanor, your attitude, whatever's coming up in that moment. You can really instead of being reactive, but be proactive in the moment and really yes. be, like really be connected to the moment and your actions and what it's creating for others, mm-hmm. man, the world will be freaking amazing. I think then we would have to have a society where people as a whole are willing to be vulnerable because a lot of that, you know, the, st- the silly stereotype of the, the, the two kid family on vacation and the dad with the mat refusing to ask directions because his pride, he can't No, I, I, I know, you know, it's like people just are afraid to say, I have no idea. I don't know. I'll figure it out when I figure it out. How can you know what Pamela J. Campbell at 75 is going to know? You're not 75. You have to live that journey. And unfortunately there is this negative stigma around the horrible B word vulnerability, right? So people think that, oh my God, it's weakness. I'm not going to show no weakness. I'm tough. Because I remember having this big wall up. <laughs> Defenses were up. <laughs> people were like, do you cry? Do you, do you show emotion? And, you know, it, it wasn't registering to me at that at, at that time. And then I would think back to my childhood with my father, even as I was being beat at times, I wasn't allowed to cry. He would say, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. 
And I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but a lot of people in my family, they just don't show emotions. They, they're not vulnerable. Um, and it's, it's kind of scary. Scary if, you, if you're not aware that vulnerability is actually where your power lies, right? So people oh, yeah. don't have that. that they, they, that's not the definition that they get to. It. That's not the meaning that they get to. It. The meaning they get to it is, oh, well, I'm not going to get Paul. You're not going to get me. I'm going to get you before you get me. <laughs> I'm not going to show no weakness. And it's not. It's totally not. Vulnerability is where your power lies. Like people can shift a room to shift the world through vulnerability. Let's talk about your transformation then. You receive help. You begin the process of becoming self-aware. And honestly, Pamela, as difficult as your, let's say, first 20 to 25 years were on this earth, what an immense fuel for being self-aware. And how could you ever really be afraid of anything going forward once you've gotten to the bottom of the pain you endured growing up because, okay, so I'm going to go swim in the deep end of whether figuratively or or literally in in the water. When my father was beating me to the point where I wanted to commit suicide as a 12 year old, I don't think that that job interview is really that scary. You know, like, can you talk to me about early steps or in general, the entire process of how it was for you to face what happened to you as an adult and become self-aware and move on from it? Well, for many years I was, for many obvious reasons, I was running away from what happened. If you met me 10, 12 years ago and I told you my story, I was so detached from it. I was disconnected from the story. I would share as if it happened to someone else, right? Because I didn't want to admit that I was that girl that was trying to run away from her father and trying to, who was looking for protection and love. So, like I said, you can run, but you can't hide. And so through alcohol and partying and pretending nothing happened, I got to a point in college, my junior year, where I just crashed, just came crumbling down. It was so bad. I had I took time off from school. There was literally three weeks left before the semester ended. Like, who waits that long <laughs> to withdraw from classes, right? Mm-hmm. And so, fortunately, there was something called a retroactive withdrawal, which meant that my current classes that I was taking, it was as if it didn't exist. And because my, I had a great support system at the college that I was attending, they believed in me, they wanted to support me, so they arranged for the president to give me this retroactive withdrawal. And so I could take time off, and I would come back when I was here and I seek counseling. Growing up with my father, I was taught that therapists were the devil. They are they're going to use what you share against you. They were just bad news. And so for many years, I held on to that limiting belief, that story he made up. Even when I entered here, I was still holding on to. The, the beliefs that he instilled in me as a child. Mm-hmm. But I got to the point where I was like, forget this. I'm just, I'm going to seconds from Betty Ford. So <laughs> I started seeing a therapist and started to really learn how to live, if that makes sense. So it does. Years, I felt like everything that happened to me 
was because I was in foster care. And I remember she would always say, okay, so she'll share something. Then she'll, she'll say, well, why do you think I'm sure this with you? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. And she said, well, this happens to all of us, right? To, to illustrate that these things that were occurring, these things that I was experiencing, it wasn't because I was in foster care. It's just everyday life. And so I just need to learn how to navigate through life. I took time off. I was with her for about a couple of years, went back to school, graduated. I also interned for Hillary Clinton that year, which was an awesome experience because I was able to meet other people that were in the foster care system, other people who had a similar stories or just, just a story, period, about how they ended up in foster care. And for the first time, I didn't feel like I was alone. For the first time, I realized I was like, wow, like there are so many different stories. Kids are placed in the system for so many different reasons. Reasons I would have never thought of. Um, one girl's, one girl's mother chose her boyfriend over her, so she had to enter foster care. I mean, I never heard of anything, of anything like that. That's the worst. Like the worst thing I ever heard in my entire life. I know it's crazy. Like she, the the mom chose her drug addicted boyfriend over her daughter, so her daughter had to enter foster care. I was like. So you weren't hit. <laughs> no one slapped you around. Oh, that experience was an eye opener. Because it's emotional trauma, not physical trauma. I mean, there's always emotional trauma with physical trauma, but I learned a lot. I definitely learned a lot, and I think I also it was the first time where I started to connect the dots. I wanted to become an attorney at that point. I wanted to lock up all the people that have seen their children. I wanted to be the next Marshall Clark. I'm going to be a famous attorney making lots of money in corporate America, 60 hours a week. I didn't believe in love. I didn't believe in having kids. I, I didn't want any of that. I said, well, if it didn't work out for my parents, it's not going to work out for me. And Lord knows if I was beat, I'm going to beat my children. So why even think about that? So that wasn't even on my radar. And during the internship, there was, I can't explain it, but there was something in my spirit. We, we all attended a hearing our last day interning through that, through the, the, the organization. And I mean, these are people who have been fighting and cussing each other out, spitting each other's food. Ugh. We went to the hearing and we were just drunk. People were holding hands. People took off work just to be at the hearing. The hearing was to, to, Push forward a law that was going to extend foster care from 18 to 21. It's only, there are currently only 16 states in which youth age out at the age of 21. And the others, it's 18. Unfortunate, New York City is 21. And like I said, we were all fighting and threatening each other's lives. But that day in the, in, in that room, we were there to fight for our future brothers and sisters that we're going to enter foster care. We were just all there for the same cause. Change. And it was so profound in the sense of I left there feeling that there was more than just being an attorney that was meant for my life. And so that was 2007. 2010, a friend introduced me to transformational work. 
And it's funny because people they say, well, you know, how did you find how did you find it? How did you find this place? You know, I think it found me. Mm-hmm. I was open, I was ready, and it, it found me. And so my journey of transformation started through this organization called Momentum Education. It's basically an organization that teaches you, gives you the tools to support you in living to your highest possibility. And man, I was like, where has this been all my life? But when I thought about it, I wasn't, I wouldn't have been open had it not been at that time. I'm learning that everything happens the way it's supposed to, even if I don't like the outcome. Everything has happened exactly the way it's supposed to, when it's supposed to, whether I agree with it or not. So I, right, because I, also part of the, the not liking the outcome is that stuff happens, how you react to it is the choice. Exactly. But I also feel like not liking it, that's also operating from ego. Sure. Which so, isn't always a bad thing. True. <laughs> but I feel like if we can separate ourselves from ego, so much is possible. So yeah, I started my journey in 2010 and it's been amazing. 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 I like, I love being some transformation at work. <laughs> And now, obviously, you've come from the point where you can now, well, in, both in a foster care situation, but also with momentum, turn around and help others because you've, to me, it's like the old thing where people will follow a coach that's been there. I, I trust you because you know what I'm going through. Do you believe that maybe within foster care, do we need as many people who have been abused or who have been in foster care as possible? Because even, let's say you're a 15 year old girl, like yourself, 16 year old girl. If somebody says, I know what you're going through, does that inspire trust? Absolutely. It does inspire trust. And it's, it's funny because I used to be one of those people. Well, you didn't do that. Well, you don't, you don't get it. You don't understand. But I've learned through my experience, pain is universal. Absolutely. Right? So I don't have to have my all podcast to trust you. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. whether... Someone has had a similar experience does not mean they can't support you, right? And so I have known people who their beliefs are, well, I'm a speaker, so I'm only going to take advice from other speakers. If you're not a speaker, then you can't help me and you don't know what you're talking about. Not true. At least this is my opinion. I feel like no matter who it is, whether it's a homeless person you happen to bump into in the street, someone that you to even if it's five minutes we are all here to teach one another life is a classroom and we are the students and if we're open to it there is something that you can take away from what someone has to offer absolutely and also i think the more open you are like we were talking earlier about the guy who's being a dick but if, he, if you're the one that he's being that way to and you are open and self-aware that even allows you to suddenly say well okay, what kind of a day is he having? Did he just get laid off? Or, you know, nothing right. happens out of the blue. And that even goes back to your father, where you mentioned that it, he abused you because he was abused in the same way. And, right. and actually, you are helping him indirectly because you cut that off right there. Maybe he'll never learn and boom, he's dead. And okay, so, you know, that's going to happen. But nobody in your family lineage going forward will have to live the, what you went through and what he went through. Because I'm choosing to learn different, to do different, to get different results. And I'm open. And, you know, 
my journey started in 2010, but I'm still on that journey. I want to learn, keep learning until my last breath. And so I feel like that's like everyone's journey is different. Everyone's path is different. Like I said, at the end of the day, it's just, for me, I see life so much differently now. Like it's just through different lenses because of this transformational work, which is why I'm so grateful for it. Because I know that I can be, do, and have whatever it is I want. I do believe in God. People get very uh, nervous around that topic. But at the end of the day, I also know that I'm a co-creator. We're all co-creators. We are all powerful beings. People don't get that. And I feel like if people got that notion, things would be so much different in the world. I think in order to do that, we have to inspire people to be willing to be self-aware. And you're obviously doing that. I, I want to ask you about your writing because you've co-authored two books that are already out, Art of Activation. And you've also co-authored Women Rising Volume 2. You said you wanted to be an attorney. Obviously, in my mind, if you're ever going to be an attorney, there's so much writing involved. So right. you were writing. It's, you, know, you were already writing, so I'm, right. you had a passion for it. Talk to me about how this came to be. How did you go from – you, know, you mentioned, okay, I realize there's a larger picture here. Maybe I don't need to be an attorney, but I can help people in other ways. Right. Where, where does it turn then where you say, I'm going to get involved with these book projects? How does that come to you? Well, it's funny because, so, The Art of Activation, uh, which I co-wrote with 22 other women and mm -hmm. across, it, <laughs> so, it's funny. I went on her website to inquire about her services as a life coach. I saw that she was looking for um, a group of women to share their story. Now, this is probably a year or two after I graduated um, a few years after I graduated the curriculum at Momentum Education, right? So before Momentum, I always wanted to share my story. I always wanted to write my memoir. I was so scared. I was scared. I was ashamed. I was like, who's going to read this crap? <laughs> like, I'm wasting my time. After the journey, after graduating, I realized, no, I have a story to share. I matter. And I didn't do anything wrong, right? And so right. I found courage within myself. And so I said, you know what? I started just like just putting it out to the universe, started, started declaring. And it's so funny because I remember at the beginning of that year, I declared that I would be a part of a group project. I wasn't attached to who it was, famous, not famous. I just wanted to be a part of a book collaboration with other people, men, women, I didn't care. And so, Someone had mentioned Lucinda, and I reached out to her to talk about different services, how she can support me. She invited me to go on her website. But on her website, I saw what she was creating as far as um, looking for writers to share their story. And at this point, I didn't really consider myself a writer. <laughs> throughout elementary school, throughout high school, people would always say, my your writing is phenomenal. You're, you are a great writer. And I would say, no, I'm going to be an attorney, right? <laughs> not not connecting to, wow, I have talent, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I remember meeting my mentor, who's a good friend of mine now, Angela. She, she, we would email back and forth. And during our correspondence, she would say, Pam, this is good stuff. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I thought, uh, she's crazy. 
who's going to read what I have to write? Forgetting how natural it came for me to write. And when people would read my writing, it's like, oh, wow, did you write this? It was powerful. So I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to start like owning my talent. This is my talent. This is the talent God gave me. And so I went on the website, and as a joke, I filled out the questionnaire Lucinda had. So I'm like, oh, they're not going to choose me. And, I, and I'm, I'm filling it out as honest as I possibly could. And I kid you not, three weeks later, I get a call. I get an email congratulating me and inviting me to be part of the project. I'm like, no, this can't be. They got the wrong email. <laughs> and I mean, everything just started flowing from there. A month later, I was working with my speaking coach. At, at the end of the six-week program, she offered for all of us to co-write a book. So it was kind of like a freebie. It was kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be with you six months. And hey, you want to co-write a book? I said, yes, absolutely. So in both books, I share, it's two different stories in both books. Um, I share about the abuse. In The Art of Activation, I share about my upbringing, transformation of work, how it changed my life, how I was able to go from point A to point B. And I give you action steps in your life so you can activate your life, as all the other authors do as well. Women Rising Volume 2 was, for the most part, the same thing, minus the action steps. Um, I mean, it, it's just been awesome. It's awesome for them to know, oh, yeah, you know, I wrote this. Like, I, this is a piece of writing that I'm proud of. And this is kind of getting my feet wet, letting people know my story, who I am, which will build up to my memoir, which will be released. So, for A World Apart, what's your, well, let me say once again, A World Apart from Foster Care to Freedom, so everybody continuously knows because it's very important that they understand and know the title. What is your dream for this? Like, oh, well, that's, that's okay. What is your dream is a, is a funny way to ask that. I guess what I mean would be. My vision. Your vision and how would you consider it a success? Is it just that it's done and released? Does that make it a success to you right off the bat that you completed this? Or what that's would make it a success for you? Funny you ask that because I have been working on this book for quite some time and even recently I have hit a hurdle with um, someone I was working with an editor and you know what I'm learning certain things just can't rush right so for me being this is part of my healing process I'm healing through this book right sure I want my vision for the book is for people to walk away inspired I want to touch move and inspire people through my story I want to educate readers. I want to inspire readers. I want to entertain readers through laughter. Uh, so I want you to cry. I want you to laugh. And I want you to be inspired. And so I've had to keep pushing back the date, the launch for the book. And I'm okay with that because, again, through this healing process, a lot is coming up. Right? I'm, I'm reliving trauma that... I tried for so many years to pretend didn't happen. I'm reliving things that I didn't even don't even remember happened, but it's it's coming up now. And so I'm grateful for this process because I get to really let go. And hopefully, someone who's reading my book will be inspired to do the same thing. Fantastic. 
Now, I want to ask you two questions about what you just said, basically. When telling stories about trauma, like are infused in the book, and you're saying you want to entertain people, you want them to be inspired, is it important when we talk about pain? Now, you said that when you used to describe it, you would talk about it in a disconnected way. Right. Is it important to, to laugh about it, to speak about it with the full gamut of emotion? If you were just pounding hurt down people's throats, do you think that's a way to turn people off? Because nobody wants to feel pain. You know, you're talking about entertaining people. Is that a good way, obviously, then to get people to, to just see the humanity in it, that there is still a full gamut of, of emotion, even around something as brutal as trauma? Yes, I feel, however, I, I don't think like there's a right or a wrong way to express mm -hmm. that. Um, I know me, I'm, I'm a very sarcastic person, and I like to tell jokes. <laughs> so I want, I want my personality to shine through the book, right? So even though I was being choked and kicked and punched, yes, it's, it's, it was a, a sad situation, a horrific situation, but there is light at the tunnel. And I want my readers to see, okay, well, this character went through X, Y, and Z, and look where she's at now. The other thing I wanted to ask you was, you mentioned there are certain things that you can't rush. How are you enjoying your newfound adult patience that has come <laughs> to you? I'm going to be so honest in this moment. <laughs> I heard it! <laughs> <laughs> Patience is not my virtue, right? And so if one of my friends were here with me, they would say, you know, like, Pam, you're, I'm always doing something. I'm always up to something. That's, I'm just a resolve-driven type of person. And so I'm really learning how to be in the moment. And being present. Yes, absolutely. Being present and being, learning the feelings that are coming up for me. Because this is my thing. As a child, I didn't have the luxury of feeling. The fact that I didn't feel anything for so many years is what kept me alive. But now that I'm no longer in this um, dangerous situation, I can give myself permission to feel what it is that's coming up for me, whether it's if I'm experiencing sadness, if I'm experiencing sorrow, if I'm experiencing anger. And sometimes I don't even know what the heck I'm feeling in the moment, but that's okay. And learning that that, that is okay and just being present in the moment. And, you know, I've been trying to meditate recently. That's new <laughs> to support me and staying present and getting clear. But I feel like through meditation, you can really hone in on visualizing what it is you want to create and getting clear and having it manifested so because we create we're the creators absolutely. we can create any world we want because it's I still agree. in between our head however we see the world is up to us absolutely i absolutely believe that we are co-creators and i also believe that there is a higher force to support us in what it is that we are looking to create in the world so meditation has been a little bit tricky <laughs> but <laughs> i'm sticking to it and you know, it's new for me. It's, it's new. The manuscript is done. I just need to go back and, you know, add some things here, delete some things here, and then pass it on to my editor, not rushing the process. I feel like at one point I was like, just just get it out. Just, just write this. Just write it, write it, write it. 
but I don't want to write it just to write it, you know? Like, anyone can just write something, just, just get it over with. But I'm really learning how to just be present and be with it. And trusting that whatever comes up, comes up for a reason, and I get to look at it, and I get to choose what my next step is going to be. Fantastic. And I also want to say to people, you don't have to believe in God or the power of God to believe in the power of community. When you talk about there's a higher force out there, to me, the stronger your community, that's how you create the things that you and I are always going to be stronger together than separate. And you know what? People may call it something different. Um, and this is just my belief, whether it's God, Buddha, the universe, like I strongly believe that there is a higher force, higher, something bigger than us that supports us and creating the life that, that we want. I agree with you. But people need to own their power. <laughs> if they own their power, they can see that they're not a victim of their situation. They're not a victim of their lives. They get to create the life that they want themselves. Life by design. Life by design. So you would also agree then, the simpler, the better. If you simplify your life and you cut the stuff that's floating around from you that doesn't matter and only focus Absolutely. on... But that does. Absolutely. Uh, listen, at the end of the day, I feel like we're all here. We're all here for a reason, for a purpose. There is something you have, the world is waiting for. There's something I have, the world is waiting for. Everyone that's listening right now, there's something you have, the world, me. Okay, so can you tell the world about some of the things that you have for them, where they can find Art of Activation? How about that for a transition? <laughs> <laughs> Where they can so, find Art of Activation and, and Women Rising Volume 2? The Art of Activation, you can find the Kindle version on Amazon. You can also find Women Rising Volume 2 on Amazon as well. I'm working on actually adding these things to my website, uh, pjcampbell.com. Like the suit, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L. What about Momentum, if people want to check out Momentum? So Momentum Education com. If there anyone who's looking to obtain tools to support them in creating extraordinary results in their life, I mean, it's, it's, I can't put it into words. It's just does it exist in multiple cities? So right now, momentum is obviously here in New York. It's in Seattle now. It's in California, and that's it for now. But they are definitely working on expanding. Rapidly, which is a, a beautiful thing. Any Twitter, LinkedIn, anything like that? Twitter. So my Twitter is PJ Campbell 03 as well. PJ Campbell 03. Okay. So uh, Instagram. Sure. Pamela, I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with me personally tonight. You've given me something that I didn't have an hour ago, and I, and I appreciate that very, very much. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been so awesome. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thank you. Pamela, I know I said it to you, but I want to say it again. Thank you so much for that chat. You have brought new things into my life that I couldn't have known before I sat down with you. Thank you. If you want to get any of the books that Pamela has published, Art of Activation or... Women Rising, Volume 2, that's W-O-M-E-N as the plural, Women Rising, Volume 2. 
You can do that on Amazon. Search for it there. It has a Kindle version. There's a print version. Her memoir should be out sometime early 2016. She co-wrote the first two novels that she's been a part of. This one is all her. It's her story. As you heard today, it's a powerful, powerful story. And one that even in its hardest times, she has not let stop her. If anything, it's galvanized her to be a more self-aware, beautiful human being. And thank you, Pamela. Like she said on the interview, you can follow her on Instagram. You can follow her on Twitter. And if you want to check out Momentum, that's MomentumEducation.com. I absolutely say check it out. If you've been searching for something larger than yourself, or if you feel like you're stuck in a little bit of a holding pattern in your life and you're not sure how to get past it, please check that out. It might be what you're looking for. If it's not, all it cost you was five seconds. And I know that it's November, and it's a good time to be thankful. No matter what our situations have been growing up, Pamela's was not a nice one. It's somewhat ironic that the month that her interview premieres on Breaking Walls happens to be the month where Thanksgiving is located. And Pamela has so much to be thankful for that she, maybe 10 years ago, would never have realized. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. I've grown interviewing her because I've had the chance to meet her. And what more can you ask for with a human relationship in life? So once again, guys, please get out there. Break those walls. Nothing holds you back in life. We all make choices. See what those choices are doing for you. They can be great ones. Just position your mind to be that way. It's fantastic. Break those walls. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 28. If you need anything, please email me at james at thewallbreakers.com. I'm happy to try to help any way that I can. And until next time, guys, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.